Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to the Hunt of War podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 114, Venison Eye Round and Stocktails. On this episode of Hunt of War, it's just you and Nick kicking off 2023. He goes into detail about a specific hindquarter cut, the eye round. What are its characteristics? How tender is it? How does it react to cooking? And chats about two successful dishes with this cut. Hope you're in the mood for Asian. Secondly, he touches on how small game is going to be a priority here until ice gets on the lakes. And elaborates about a stock tail that can add a savory twist to your cocktail hour. Get your appetite ready for this episode of... Well, hey, folks, beautiful morning here in Michigan. As you guys are tuning into this, it is now 2023. So cheers, folks, to the start of a brand new year. I know many of us uh, work-wise are in the middle of projects because the work year has already started. And uh, yeah, we're in the middle of of the school year, so to speak, uh, in my neck of the woods. But yeah, we're going to get back and we're going to be able to uh, start fresh after a little bit of a break. Kind of a kind of a break that I really had to take in and not do a whole lot. I got all the deer that I needed to get uh, before break. So there was no need for me to go out and hunt deer. Uh, around this Christmas time. Um, both a good thing because, man, was it cold out there for a lot of folks here in the northern. Actually, I would say shoot everywhere when we got hit with that blizzard. I put quotations on that blizzard. Yeah, southerners, you know, really shut everything down, really, really hunker in. Northerners, get out the big coat. That's kind of the situation that it was. But at the same time, yeah, I didn't have to get out. I didn't have to go chase anything. Um, got to stay inside and kind of work on some stuff in the kitchen that I've been toying with. Um, kind of playing with a little bit of the the baking side. I've got a good recipe now that I've kind of honed together for bagels. Um, really enjoy making those. I will say, like, there's an element to... Being in the kitchen, like baking is definitely probably my weakest suit. Uh, it's probably definitely my off suit when it comes to being in the kitchen, mainly because it's it's very precise and it's very ingredient dependent, namely into uh, yeast. Yeast is one of those things like it's either going to work out amazing for you or it's not. Um even given the the environments that I was in, everything was kind of a little bit cooler in the house just because it was, um, well, the temperatures. Um, so it was a little bit cooler in the house. So my first batch, I didn't get the rise that I was hoping to out of my dough. I did end up putting it into the oven and turning on the light and using that as my proofing area. Try to both allow the the dough to take in that moisture um, or basically just like kind of raise the humidity inside of, of uh, the oven, but at the same time have it also hold more heat, be a little bit more insulated. Um, once the fire in the fireplace got going and we raised the temperature of the house a little bit, 
and it started to really work its way, my second batch in the afternoon really took off. That one I got a little bit more rise out of. Um, when making bagels, yeah, it's a double-step process of uh, first you're going to boil them, but then you're also going to then uh, put them in your in your oven to finish baking them. And so there's this, you're always just kind of nitpicking with something when it came to, to bagels. But uh, it's amazing how when you make something fresh, uh, when you bake something fresh, people just go to it like they've never had it before. Um, same thing with bread. With bread, fresh, fresh break bread, you can't just leave it alone. You got to attack it. You got to be into that loaf. And it, it makes it so good. And then, unfortunately, though, it's always that first loaf that gets just absolutely obliterated. And then, you know, people finally, like, gain, gain self-control when it comes to the next loaf. But then keeping that up and keeping that goodness around is always difficult. And I found the same thing with the bagels. I knew I was going to have to make a double batch just for them to survive throughout the week. And we didn't even make it the week. We made it, like, four days. But yeah, a lot of waiting around too when it comes to baking because you you do a little bit you uh, with for the bagels you'd make a sponge and essentially that's just a little bit of flour and it's a little bit uh, or it's activating the yeast basically um, with a little bit of water and so then that that pancake batter that you start out with that's going to get your first lift that's going to get your first rise then you mix in the flour and at that point. You really need it in there because we're trying to get the gluten um, to to work. You want to get in those strands to be tightening up within the dough. And I know a lot of listeners now that are gluten-free, all of a sudden we're cringing. Gluten's not a bad deal. Now, if it does make you sick, then obviously, yes, it's a bad deal. But that's what gives that that chewiness. That's what gives that texture to the bagels. And then we were uh, able to enjoy those for, yeah, I would say a couple days. We didn't even make it the week with those. But it was a good experiment. It was good to kind of reach outside of my normal wheelhouse and kind of just jet out into something new. Um, If I'm going to be more well-rounded in the kitchen, yeah, I got to do things that I'm not normally accustomed to. So that was my venture into baking uh, for that day, which was really good. Um, With this tangent that I'm going on with, with baking, I'm just kind of summarizing kind of this, the last part of this year. It's really been a good finish to 2022 uh, for Huntivore. It, we, we got, got our deer in. We felt really good about that. We've got a date set up here. Uh, actually, next week it'll be after break, and we're going to be getting the grinder out and getting the guys back together and just doing a big grind night or grind day where we're going to come in. Everybody brings uh, what they want to be ground up. Um, And normally in a situation like that, if you're doing a group grind, it's good to be a part of the process on the front side of that. Uh, I was able to help these guys break down their deer earlier in the year. So when it comes to what's going to be going through the grinder, I have a good sense of, of the quality of it, of what's there, of of what we want to go into the grind and what we don't want to go into the grind. I'm not afraid of venison flavor, and I think that kind of plays in my in my favor. So if there was a little bit of tallow or there was a little bit of fat that was left uh, between those rims that I was like, this is good grind quality, that just plays into uh, the grind mix that we're going to be having. Now, I do like a 80-20 venison uh Pork fat, that's that's just the, the nature of the beast. That's what I, I like to be able to to utilize with that little bit of extra fat, the neutral fat in there, um, to give it the to allow it to patty up and just give it a little bit of grease in the pan. Um, I I do appreciate that mix. But being able to see what goes in and then be able to see how that's gonna develop into the final product. Um, because at that point, as much as we're gonna be clean we're going to be you know washing everything at the beginning are we going to necessarily be able to to rinse down between our batches probably probably not give it a good scrape out uh to try and you know give ourselves the feeling that i i have a separate batch than the other guy but 
at the same time, we were able to, I've seen the process that they've gone through, and I feel confident. And when they bring it, we're going to be able to thaw it, thaw it out to the point where we can at least cut it into chunks. I want to keep it as cold as possible. Um, one trick when you're making grind is keeping things very, very, very cold. Uh, when we were um, making some, some uh, it would have been hot dogs, shoot, a couple of years ago, that was one where it was like, you absolutely should be having this thing absolutely as cold as possible for the emulsification. Otherwise, your bur- or your dogs aren't going to come out as re- come out right. I had half of the batch come out beautiful, and then I had a few of them come out with a grainy texture. And I'm sure some of you have even experienced that with your summer sausage. In fact, uh, fellow podcaster Josh over there at the How to Hunt uh, how to hunt deer podcast even posed that question to me. He's like, Hey, I got my sausages back. And one of them was not pleasant. What happened? And he described that graininess. He described, uh, how it wouldn't hold together and fall apart. And there was just this mouthfeel that he didn't like. And I was like, your temps got a little high as they were making that sausage. That batch probably got left off to the side. That might've been the top section of the, the tub that finally got in. So it got up to temp. And for some odd reason, that's what happens uh, when you, with you, when you're with grind and you let it get a little hot or let it get, let it get a little warm is that it's going to be this grainy texture. So keeping everything cool is going to be your best bet for doing that. Oh, and here we are. Second tangent. <laughs> Out of nowhere with the burger. Um, I was kind of hoping to focus on doing a, a highlight of a piece of, or basically a cut section, a cut highlight here, um, taken from the pages of the of the Hunt Divorce Head to Hoof section. We wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this morning, the eye round. And the reason I wanted to talk about eye round is as people are making dishes throughout this winter, we're going to want something that gives a little pizzazz, a little bit of flair. I know there's going to be people that are going to be making some meals that they're going to want to take to work. They're on a meal plan at this point. They're really jumping on with the resolutions or even at the same time, like, hey, life is busy. I know sports are going to be taken off here very soon as far as winter season goes you got your basketball you got your wrestling you got your volleyball you name it it's going to be starting and so we want to be able to have meals that are prepped ready to go or that are at least easy to put together and so that's where I'm going to highlight the eye round so I've done a quick little uh, evaluation of the eye round and it's a muscle that sits between the top round and the bottom round in that hind leg it's nestled in there uh, between those two muscles. Specifically, what does that do? I'm, I'm not exactly sure its function other than maybe a stabilization or helping align those muscles. That's my best guess. But the eye round is connected uh, to the bottom round uh, more so than the top round. And on a beef... Um, when they in the UK especially they tie those two pieces together, so the bottom round and the eye round get tied together as a larger roast. On its own, here in the United States we call it the eye round. In the UK they call it the salmon cut, and they're giving it that uh, that distinction because it's very pink. It's not a deep red like the two side muscles to it. It is very pink, uh, bright in color. And in fact, the, uh, the strangulation, the, the muscle fibers run the full length of it, and they are a little bit bigger. And so you have that look of a salmon filet. But once you separate that from the bottom round, cleanup is very easy. On the inside of this, there is no silver skin, and all the external fat is just really easy to wipe down through with a, with a blade. You're able to take that off and make it... Uh, Make it just look beautiful. Um, taking off the narrow tips and squaring the edges helps for the even cooking, and those tips go right into the grind so that we're not we're not losing anything by this, but at the same time, nipping off those tips, they're just going to get a little overdone, and they're not going to be so helpful there uh, in whatever dish you're going to make. So I just nip the tips and send those over to the grind pile. Um, on a score of tenderness... If I were to give a scale of one through four, 
one being, I mean, tougher than tough. Like we're talking Shank. Shank is going to be down there into the the ones and twos. Um, then you're going to get up into like the fours where it's going to be the most tender. And here we're going to be talking about like yearling tenderloins at that point. Like almost, I mean, you just use a fork to cut it. On the whole makeup of this, I'm going to give the tenderness of the eye round, I'm going to give it a three because it can be butterflied into medallions. It's perfect for steaks if you want to use steaks. It has maybe a touch more chewiness than you would get off of a backstrap, but at the same time, it is a very tender cut, especially coming off that hind leg where it's doing a lot of work. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the large pronounced muscle fibers that run from end to end allow for great cross-cutting the grain um, for for making thin cuts or even just for, like I said, making those medallions. Um, by shortening those muscle fibers, that's what gives you that better, uh, better bite there when it comes to steak making. The light color of the muscle also suggests a lighter flavor profile. So it's not going to be as robust as, say, the bottom round. It's going to have a lot more of that venison taste to it or the top round because that's the big uh, moving muscle. That's the the big heavy worker there. This is more along the signs where it's, it's that lighter in color. I don't think it has to do near as much as, you know, comparatively in that hind leg. Um, it also takes very well to brining and marinades to be able to, A, give it any more of tenderness that you're looking for, but at the same time, impart more flavor, impart the flavor of the dish that you want to. And the example that I'm going to have in a little bit is going to be a perfect uh, use for that. Now, when it comes to cooking variability, um, some pieces of meat give themselves a better setup when it comes to cooking, and that's going to be on the higher end of like a four versus something that's very straightforward. It's uh, you only got one way to cut it, which is a one. I'm going to give the cooking variability a two out of four uh, because it's lean, mild flavor, long muscle fibers, and being the smallest of the hind leg muscles makes this almost exclusively cooked hot and fast. You're going to want to you're going to want to just give it the high heat right away. You're going to want to keep it rare and medium rare. Uh, that internal temperature you're looking at like 115 to 120 is a perfect setup. Um, even for folks that do like them more well done, I'm going to say keep it at that 115, 120, because once you get past that 120, we really start to dry this thing out. Um, you're not going to be as uh, pleased with that, even someone who likes it done all the way through keep it right back more that medium and i think you're going to have a better ex eating experience with uh with venison at least that's my my challenge to you um cooking the muscle gives a uh gives the most control of your butterfly and medallions uh gives you more surface area well if you do that you are going to have to pay attention more because this does cook quick um just because it's lighter and you know it, it's uh not as heavily worked. It doesn't have a lot of that inter or that inner fat all the way in between it. It's super lean, even by the stance of how venison goes. So it's going to be one of those things where, hey, having a brine, having a marinade, is going to help you control that moisture on the inside and help keep it tender, as opposed to getting rubbery and gray. So that's the uh, the inside round. If I can take a quick second here and find the recipe that I hopefully will be submitting here soon. I have it ready to go. I have it queued up. I just don't have it uh, submitted over to the boys at the Sportsman's Empire to be launching that. But we shall launch this by uh, by this next week or the next week after. We'll get it up here. But I had written a recipe that kind of went back to my college days, um, which is already on the Sportsman's Empire blog, and that's going to be the venison ramen. And I know faux and ramen have really kind of come back into the forefront of of eating. People have been wanting to do that more, at least on the culinary side. Um, they like really making um, these Asian dishes that center around the broth of uh, of the dish. 
so it's whether you, whether you're using your venison, venison stock to create this, or even just you need a, a cut of meat to go along with whatever you're creating. The uh, eye round is a perfect example for you to use. And the way that I use it in both of these dishes, both the one I'm going to describe now, and then the one that I uh, had done previous as the uh, the ramen, is that the first thing I want to do is when I when I cut these um, pieces of meat to be able to put in, I am going to cut these at, at a quarter inch. So pulling this out of the fridge and immediately start cutting is going to be a good thing here because we're going to do a couple different things. Um, but once I pull this muscle out ready to be cut and prepared for the dish, I want it to be nice and cold. When I get it ready up, I'm going to put it horizontal, and I want to cut across the grain. So I'm not cutting along the muscle. I'm going to be cutting it uh, basically the short way. Uh, the, across it. And I want to cut these about a quarter inch thick. And you're like, Nick, that's a small, that's like just outside of a silver dollar. Uh, if it was a smaller dough, if it was a bigger dough or a bucket, you know, it's going to be a little bit bigger. Like, what am I going to do with this quarter inch piece of meat that's now the size of like just outside of a silver dollar? Well, hold on. We're going to cut these and go along the whole way and you're going to get these little, um, slivers are basically these little medallions and we're going to then come back and you're going to pound these out i use my uh 10 and a, 10 and a half inch uh lodge cast iron skillet um that's that's my meat mallet and i just go to town on these and i go from a quarter inch and i want to take them down to an eighth inch and you'll be surprised how wide these pieces get that's going to be all really the work that we're going to do for both of these recipes. Uh, it's going to give me more surface area, so it's going to let me uh, cook a little quicker. Um, second, it's going to open up those path pathways in the muscles so that now the marinade is going to be able to take on more action. Uh, it's going to be able to work quicker. Um, and at the same time, it's going to turn that meat that normally I would need a like a quick knife to cut it in half to eat the bite and have to take a couple chews. We're going to turn this into fork tender uh, just by this process alone. So if you got a meat mallet, great. Uh, pretty small if you're using a cuber. Um, if you got one of those perforators, that's not necessarily what we want to go for. We want to go for just a solid smack on these pieces of meat. And so if you need an arm workout, or if uh, you don't want to strain your elbow, make sure you switch your hands, go back and forth. But I use that uh, skillet, and I just work it all the way along. Um, I'll take uh, plastic wrap or an old Ziploc that I just cut off the top of it, and I will put the meat in between uh, those just so it doesn't stick to the mallet as I smack it down or stick to the cutting board. But I just lay those in there and then go to town, and I go from a quarter inch to an eighth inch. After I've got those prepared that way, then you can go right into the marinade. And that marinade time is only going to be about one hour. That's all you're going to need for uh, this recipe here is one hour marinade because it's going to work so quick. And in these two Asian renditions that I've uh, put together, those those like beefy flavors of the soy sauce. I should say beefy, but I should say those robust flavors of soy sauce and ginger and hosen sauce and all those Asian real punchy sauces. Those are going to work quickly. So we only need a, need like an hour on this. So it's one of those it's one of those things where you could like prepare it uh, beginning of the day, and if you were you know cut up cut back maybe go low sodium or cut back on your soy sauce, you could marinate them throughout the day. Or it's one of those things like you get home, quick started at 4 o'clock, go off to practice. When you come back from practice, it's already marinated up, and now you just have to assemble uh, what you're doing. And so that's uh, an easy way for us to do this. This is one of those like Tuesday meals, both the ramen and the, uh, the venison stir-fry that I'm going to be talking about here. Both of those I just love. And the fact that, I mean, we grew up with stir-fry uh, in the turkey version, it it really was one of those meals like you you got a hot meal with a bunch of flavor middle of the week because it was so easy to put together and without a doubt there was always leftovers for the next day so as i came home from school needed a snack or whatever needed something to get me through till dinner you have a little bowl of stir fry to get you going but anyway that was uh 
both those treatments of the eye round is going to be perfect for these two recipes. Now I keep going back to the uh, let me find it here real quick. I keep going back to the oh I'm struggling. Here it is. Okay, so I keep going back to the ramen. And with that ramen, yeah, I want to be able to slice those thin, and I want to be able to um, pound those out so that they uh, they really get that. And I'm now looking back at this, and I think I give you a longer time to... Uh, marinade these. I set this one up for four hours. Um, and I think that one is I didn't use a whole lot of... I used a couple different things in there to really pizzazz those up. So in, in that marinade, we're going hosen sauce, soy sauce, white vinegar, minced garlic, spring onion, um, minced ginger, and then black pepper. Uh, no salt on that. That's where that soy sauce is going to do a lot of work. And uh, that one I gave you for four hours. With the uh, with the ramen, as much as it is the noodles and the stuff that you put in there, a lot of focus is on the broth. That's more of like the soup setup. So you really want a flavorful broth. And so I think that's why on there I went with a little bit more uh, ingredients because once... Once we get that mixed together, that broth is going to take on the flavors of that soy sauce, the hosen sauce, the white vinegar, um, the ginger, the onion, the garlic, the all those different things that are going in there. So it's going to be worked into that broth. You're flavoring that up. That's going to be a standalone piece of the dish is going to be the broth itself. Um, you know, if you're going for a chicken noodle soup, you kind of eat the pieces out of the middle, and then you use your, you know, grilled cheese or whatever to soak up, or your, you know, whatever you're eating along with it, uh, to soak up the broth and then eat that, and not necessarily drink it down. But in the ramen case of this one, you're going to want to enjoy every bit of that broth that you've created in that dish, and so that's where we really wanted to flavor that up. That was a good quick one. That one really brought back memories of of college. Um, if I was more of the culinary guy that I was back then, I would have probably smacked myself over the head a couple times the way that I did make ramen because it was literally in the micro or yeah microwave for the water, pour it in, eat it as is with the packet. Really straightforward, kind of just like dumb college kid stuff. But it was like that was the meal that I was going to then have. And I just, I look back at that and I'm like, man, no wonder I got sick of it. No wonder I couldn't have it for, you know, close to a decade before I finally came back and said, all right, let's try this again, but let's time, let's put some thought into it and let's add a bunch of stuff to make it worthwhile to make it an actual meal. And so that's what I was able to do there. But yeah, the new recipe that has not yet been published, but will be published soon. So there's your foreshadowing. There's your teaser to look out for it. I did post some pictures of it um, on on Instagram, and that was my Mongolian-inspired venison stir-fry. Mongolian beef is a great takeout staple in a lot of Asian restaurants. And there's a reason that it's in all of those is because everybody enjoys it. It's a big seller. It really does does well. But if we were going to add our own twist to it, we would definitely be using that cut of eye round for this again. So we come back, we're going to be using uh, those cuts quarter inch thick, pound them out to an eighth, eighth inch thick, and then you're going to let those marinate over an hour. Um, Kind of the big trick of the the venison stir fry as well is like stir fry is super easy. You, it's a one pot wonder. Everything goes in to one pot. Nothing has to be, well, I don't, I don't want to say nothing has to be pre-done and then brought back later. Actually, that's exactly what I did with the meat. Um, after I've marinated it, it goes to the, uh, it, it could, it should be a wok. 
but I don't have a wok. I have a, a cast iron. So I then pop these into these uh, pieces of venison. I laid them down into uh, the pan and gave them a quick sear on both sides. Shoot, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. I'm not really cooking them all the way through. I'm just getting that sear on the outside. So once you get through all those pieces, and it takes about five minutes, well, maybe a little longer than five minutes to do all of your pieces. So be ready to be there for a minute and to allow those to get nice color on them. I did two uh, two eye routes. So they were off of one deer. I packaged them together. I pulled that out, and that was what I used. So I had one deer's worth of eye rounds. And I cook for a family of five. I mean, I guess I could say three and a half, four and a half. Like, they're still young, but we've already entered this this realm of of appetites where on any given night, all of a sudden, their growing bodies kick in and they polish off whatever you throw out in front of them, and they're looking for more. So that's been fun to be able to then incorporate more into our dishes to create bigger bigger meals because I'm a, I'm a big leftovers guy. And if the kids, if they don't like it that night, hey, that's just more for dad on the on the backside. But if they do like it that night, like, sweet, we got the clean plate club. And so we uh, were able to work with that. But once I get these a sear all the way around, I'm then going to then create the sauce that I want to have uh, in that pan. And so before I thicken the sauce, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to add the broth or the stock into um, – Back up, looking at my instructions here. I'm going to pre-make the sauce, essentially, without the thickener. That's what I meant to say. So what I'm going to be able to do is I'm going to have my my stock. I mixed it in with a little bit of water, and then I'm going to add some brown sugar. My wife is on the sweeter side when it comes to her, her Asian stuff. So she likes the sesame chicken, which is real sweet. Uh, she was commenting that she was like, man, this needs more sweetness in the dish. I put two tablespoons of brown sugar, and I thought it was point odd, but it was more on the savory side. I'm more of the savory. Anyway, so two tablespoons, you're going to be able to get a savory uh, set up to your 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 uh, stir fry. Go three tablespoons if you want more sweet. I stuck with two. You do what you do. But by having that sugar already in there... Um, Eighth cup of soy sauce and eighth cup of water, because I was trying to dilute that down. I didn't want to have too much saltiness into that. But once I get all that mixed together, sugar's dissolved. It's in with the stock. It's uh, it's in with the water. You know, give it 30 seconds in the microwave just to give it a chance to thicken up. I then pour that into uh, the cast iron. I've killed the heat on the cast iron at this point, bringing the temp down a little bit. I don't want to, like, flash this water and have it immediately start evaporating yet. I want it to be able to hit there, start to bubble up, loosen the stuff that's on the bottom from when we uh, did all the searing. That's that fond on the bottom. And so I came through with our little bamboo uh, scraper, and I just kind of worked that along the bottom and worked up everything that had already been uh, caramelized onto that cast iron. That's that one bit that, man, we've already imparted a ton of flavor, and now we're leaving a bunch right there. Let's not lose it. Let's bring that in. So now we've got our sauce really going to town. Uh, we've got it up to temp now. It's starting to bubble. We've mixed in the fond in the bottom. That's where we can now add in your thickener. And what I did with that is it was equal parts water and cornstarch. So I think it was a couple tablespoons. I got the shoot. I got it right in front of me. What am I trying to guess? Yeah, one tablespoon of cornstarch and one tablespoon of water, and mix those together into a paste. And that's going to just allow it to be real smooth. I then pour that into the sauce and just start to whisk it, and that stuff works very well. Uh, I didn't get any lumpiness when I when I put that in there, but it dissolved in quick, but it also thickens up quick. So be ready. Once you've added that cornstarch in, in goes your the rest of your your stuff. I tried to say real simple. Yeah, I went with uh, bell pepper, onion. We went with the baby baby corns and one of my favorite Asian pieces to go in, water chestnuts. 
And I stuck with just those four things. Uh, rather than go too crazy on my stir fry, I, yeah, I just went with bell pepper, onion, baby corns, and water chestnuts. You can add whatever you can, you want to add. Um, oh, as I'm also looking up here, I remembered that I did put in um, some minced garlic, some uh, minced ginger, and some chili flake. Actually, that was done before the stock got put in. Shoot, now I'm going backwards again. So what I want to be able to do is have that minced garlic, that chili flake, and the ginger. I'm going to put that in with a little bit of oil in the pan. And what I'm doing is emulsifying that oil. So that oil is now going to take on the flavors of the chili, the, the garlic, and the ginger. So when I pour in the stock and the sugar, that's then going to get mixed in all into that sauce. Looking up at my measurements too. Yep, I because I was serving it to little kids, I went with a half a teaspoon of red chili pepper. If you are making this for a group that really likes heat instead of sweet, or you like to go heavy on the sweet and you want to add more heat, just up the amount of chili flake. Or this would be a perfect time if you've dried your own chilies, say some of those Carolina Reapers or even one of them, one rooster tail, pop that in there. It's going to come out. This is one of those uh, where the chili or whatever heat element you put in really comes forward because you are getting it into that oil, and that oil then coats everything. So be ready for that capsaicin to really do a lot of work. So I went with a half teaspoon of red chili flake to keep it uh, kind of mild. Um, the It was brought to my attention that it was too spicy, uh, but they worked through it. Yeah, my youngest was like, yeah, too spicy, too spicy. And then finally when well, all was said and done, he got some rice into it, uh, being being too spicy was not a not a thing for him anymore. But yeah, mix that all together. And basically just heat it through, let it let that thicken up, let that uh, sauce just coat everything. You're not going to have a ton that's just left in the bottom of the pan there, or the bottom of the skidded. It's going to be over everything. And we served it with rice and tortillas. We used to have a Mongolian barbecue here in, uh, in Grand Rapids, and it has now since closed. But it was very reminiscent of of what that was, that stir-fry place, the fact that I just had, you know, flour tortillas ready to go, and then we also had uh, brown rice, and then we had our our uh, our stir-fry. It really was an awesome meal. Um, I also have a picture of, yeah, it was, a, it was a total winner. All five plates cleaned up, including the rice, including the tortillas. Everything was just cleaned up. And I mean, scraped. They had gone through and scraped up every little bit so they could finish it on their tortillas. They were just ecstatic about it. So it went from one of those like they were not excited to once they got into the meal, they were totally into it. So that was super cool for that to happen. And that's all thanks to the eye route. That's that feature. Uh, piece of meat that I wanted to talk about tonight because it can really be versatile, especially in these Asian dishes where you want something that is tender, you want something that is bite-sized, but you want something that's got enough heft to be able to hold itself up. And that's a great cut to be able to use. Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at Huntivore at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So yeah, being that it's the beginning of the year, I'm kind of actually going to look here. What's what's on the docket for the first part of this year? And yeah, I did take off uh, Christmas break here. Didn't really do a whole lot outside. Um, 
we were, yeah, because it was just so cold and I was just keeping the house uh, at a nice warm temperature. It burnt, burned a lot of wood out of the, out of the fireplace, which was really, I don't, it was very enjoyable to be able to just go get, get the pieces of wood that I had already split and cut. It was already dry, stacked up, ready to go. Bring those into the house and just have that, that fire going. Um, I used to just switch off a TV, switch off electronics. You know, even if I, it, I'd be on the phone, but yeah, then you just set the phone down and all you do is just stare at those flames, just lick along the backside of that fire. And it became one of those things that the boys were always asking, like, hey, let's, let's get that fire going. If I had let it out, um, we had done, uh, done one um, that was going through Christmas Eve and the boys did get concerned. They wanted that fire to be done earlier than later because Santa was going to be coming and we, we need to get this out of the way. We need to make sure that he's got a clear avenue. And I believe in the note that he left uh, next to the, the finished off milk and the, and the cookies, cookie crumbs, I think there's a little note that said, hey, thanks for putting the fire out. That was, that was good of you boys. They're always looking out for Santa because, uh, yeah, Santa's always looking out for them. So I didn't get a chance to get out, but I think we're going to take off uh, right out the gate here. We're going to try and get some small game in. Um, I noticed a lot of squirrels uh, out there, at least during uh, archery deer season, um, even into into gun season. Just a mass of squirrels uh, in my neck of the woods, which has been good. It's been untapped for a little while. We've done some pot shooting. Uh, here and there, but we haven't done a real good effort as far as going and getting squirrels. Right now, there's not a lot of snow on the ground. Um, temperatures are kind of going wishy-washy. Uh, we could have some soft ground. It would be nice for it to firm up just for, for hiking around, but this might be a good chance for the boys to come out with me and chase down some bushy tails. Um, you know, not bring a gun of their own, but at least to just walk around and actually be the little point guy that it's like, all right, the squirrel went behind the tree. I need you to walk around that tree, kind of bust him out, bring him over here so he's got to hide on this side. He'll forget about dad, and then I'll make the shot, and we'll we'll get him down. But just to expose them to uh, barrel control, to expose them to how dad's maneuvering the gun, to have that be a safety element, um, to have them know where to stand, what to do in a situation, whether we're looking for the squirrel, whether the squirrel is there, or whether it, uh, um, or we're like pursuing it, or even searching for them. I know my, my middle boy, he had a lot of questions the last time that we went uh, for squirrels, and unfortunately, a lot of his questions were also uh, at the top of his lungs for that reason. So we were, <laughs> I was seeing a lot of bushy tails at 100 and 150 yards. <laughs> no way to get to those things. And so, you know, it was the, the reminder of we can't be super loud. We can be, we can talk to each other. We just can't be super loud. So being able to to talk when, when to know when to talk and to know when not to talk and where to stand and what to do. I know they really when I do put one on the ground, it is it is all in as far as we get to examine uh, the squirrel, we get to check it out, touch the tail, man, they're soft, and be able to then go through that process of uh, converting that animal into food. Um, you know, they're, they're still not in there for the gut process yet, at least on the squirrels, um, cleaning those up. But they've, they've really taken an interest to that. Um, my oldest, uh, this was a great year in the deer woods because I happened to take a doe with my, my oldest boy in the, uh, in the blind with me. We were in, uh, oh yeah, all sorts of sentimental stuff. I was, we were in the sawmill that uh, my grandfather built, uh, which happens to be right there on the edge of the woods. It's all overgrown on the sides. Uh, it did not get brush hogged uh, at all this year. So it just provided this little honey hole where we were able to put up some seats. We were covered up by all sorts of brambles and briars in front of us. And um, with all the equipment that's underneath this lean-to, 
Uh, it really provides a great spot for you to just sit tucked up next to a beam and not be seen. And we had a, a doe come in at, what was she, 25 yards? Somewhere in the rounds of 20, 25 to 27. And I looked to him over my shoulder. I was giving him the green light or the red light on what I was going to do. I looked at him to ask what, uh, what was going to happen, and he gave me the thumbs up. He's like, take it. So we shot that doe, and he got to then experience the track. He got to experience the drag back, or at that point was lift into the gator. He also got to experience uh, me, well, experience me cutting the deer and gutting it and field dressing it out there. Um, I did nip it in the back, so I did happen to burst uh, burst into some of that intestine into the gut, so it was one of those real quick jobs that we had to do, kind of messy. But at the same time, he saw the effort and he saw the um, detail that I went into to try to keep it as clean as possible. He also then was able to get to the cut table, and I got to throw some gloves on him, and I got to put a sharp knife in his hand, and with some tutelage, he was able to do some boning out of some ribs. I had him doing some fat work on pieces that I would hand him, and knowing that that knife was super sharp and going through of like always cutting away and being able to have blade control and know when your knife is starting to get a little bit dull that you go to the steel to steal or give it to dad so he can steal it back so that you're not running the risk of having a, a dull blade uh, go through that meat. That was just a fun experience. And so we're now starting to get into that where they're wanting to help. They're wanting to be a part of, of what's going on. They're wanting to be included. And that's been, that's been a lot of fun. That got me real giddy here uh, to have him him be to be involved. So now it's like I, it's one of those things. Like when I am cutting, I got to have a second knife ready. I don't want to make I don't want to deter that by any means. I also did notice that I, I didn't keep him for very long. He did a couple pieces, and then he was like, "All right, oh, I'm gonna go back up to the house." So it's like, "All right," I, so I took this knife away. I wasn't gonna force him to stay there and go through the whole deer with me. That's a marathon. Shoot, there's a lot of adults that don't do that and <laughs> stay there the whole time. So, so being able to get him in, excited into it, uh, in you know, being able to just uh, introduce him to that and actually get some tutelage in as far as uh, using a knife, that was a, that was real fun. And so we're hoping to continue those lessons. So continuing meat cutting lessons, um, also with the the small game, that's going to be a focus. But then yeah, getting into the kitchen too. Not that I'm making resolutions or anything, but I'm hopefully going to be writing some more. So yeah, I've got some. I've got a recipe that's going to be like I was talking about earlier. That's going to get put up here hopefully soon once I submit that for publishing. Um, I've got a, a stock tail that I'm working on as far as a cocktail made with uh, bone stock or uh, venison stock. It's a savory one. It's like a Bloody Mary, but uh, a little bit more heavy on the um, the savory side of it. I think I mentioned that one, uh, also on Instagram, but that one is, it's called a, uh, well, back in the sixties, like when they made the Bloody Mary, they also had one that used the, the stock. In fact, it was a Campbell's executive that, uh, was really pushing on, on the creation of this. And it was using, uh, a vodka with, um, beef consomme, or beef um, bouillon, adding some some spices into that, uh, your celery salt, um, a little bit of hot hot sauce, basically a Bloody Mary without the tomatoes is what that was, and that they called that one the bullshot. Uh, I've since renamed that when you use your venison stock for that for that particular one, it is now called the buckshot. A uh, little play on words there, both being a buck and that's what you use to kill the deer. You're like, we get it, Nick. We get it. Move on. Perfect. Well, then there's also a rendition where it does tie in between both uh, the buckshot and a Bloody Mary, where you add a little bit of tomato juice or your spicy Bloody Mary mix into that particular drink to give it just a little bit of more of that uh, 
Bloody Mary-esque flavor to it. And that one they referred to as the Bloody Bull. I've then taken that and added my own twist. I take the tomato juice or the Bloody Mary mix, and I freeze it into ice cubes. Because you serve this on ice. And so by putting the the mix in the ice cubes, not necessarily getting you, you want to chill it, but I don't chill it nearly as much because I want I want them to really kind of melt these uh, tomato cubes that I've made. But you put a couple of those into your drink, pour your uh, mix, or excuse me, pour your cocktail into the glass with those those ice cubes of of the Bloody Mary mix, the tomato juice, and those then begin to melt and they begin to work their way through the drink and so it this this tomato esque starts to blossom so instead of giving you the bloody right at the beginning i give you just a wisp of it so since we're using the venison stock i call it the blood trail because when you first take your shot on a deer you're left with just a little bit of blood you get a speck here you get a speck there but then as you continue to follow that trail of where that animal went, hopefully it gets more defined. There's more blood. There's more of the uh, facts, and there's more of the clues of where this thing went. You get a plop here. You get a pile here. You get a spray on the tree. And finally, you get up to your prize, which is laying there. And that's kind of what the drink does, is that as you continue to sip on it, you get a hint of your tomato. You get a hint of where this is going. And then finally, there's a little pocket that explodes that has a little bit of that uh, pepper in there that really kind of spikes it up and really gives things your fancy. And as you continue to sip on it, the longer that you follow it, the more defined that tomato juice or that Bloody Mary mix becomes in a sense, mimicking the blood trail. So yeah, that's what I got for you tonight, folks, is I've got you some couple Asian dishes. I've got you a couple cocktails with your venison stock. We're looking to add some more bushy tails into our mix, and we're just hoping to continue to be able to foster this education of my kids through this whole process. So yeah, hopefully you get a chance to be in the kitchen whether it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday and you got practice that you're heading to, maybe you can add a little Asian zinc and incorporate some of your hard-earned venison into it. But whether it's going to be the ramen style or whether it's going to be the stir-fry, make sure that the knife that you're using to prepare that meat is always sharp.